Well, this is great. Uh, good morning. Welcome to the Atlanta Council. I'm Steve Grundman, the MA and George Lund Fellow here at the Atlanta Council. The purpose of this morning's event is to hear Heidi Hsu, uh, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, who's going to make an address entitled Modernizing Army Acquisition. Thanks very much, Heidi, uh, for taking the time to participate in this series, um, have a conversation with us, and thanks to all of you who have uh, come, including the, uh, the many corporate members of the Atlantic Council, individual members of the Atlantic Council, and board directors, um, all of whom I'm uh, grateful with the rest of you for making time uh, to participate in the conversation today. So before we uh, move to the substance of the event, <clears throat> uh, I have a couple of administrative notes. Uh, the agenda for these proceedings uh, is pretty straightforward. The Assistant Secretary will speak for about a half hour, following which uh, she and I will take those chairs for a short conversation, after which I will then moderate questions uh, from those of you here in the audience. Um, I also want to acknowledge uh, the uh, support uh, and partnership of the National Defense Industrial uh, Association, um, whose chairman, General Arnold Panaro, is here this morning and who will do us the favor of introducing uh, Ms. Shu uh, momentarily. Thank you, Arnold, again, uh, both to you personally and to the association. Uh, please, everyone, take note that this event is public, uh, fully on the record. We also are live streaming uh, the event over our website. Uh, the only uh, th that has great significance for Ms. Shu. Um, the only other significance it has for the rest of you in the audience is, is the following, and that is, if I call upon you to uh, ask a question, please wait for one of our staff uh, to bring you the microphone, and when you have the microphone, please carefully identify yourself and your affiliation, for the record. Um, also, I am compelled to uh, make known that we are tweeting this event uh, at the hashtag uh, ACScowcroft, uh, and uh, also, I can receive questions that may be conveyed through that channel uh, from any of you, be you in the room right here or uh, out there uh, watching uh, on the web. And uh, our staff will bring me uh, the better of those questions for at least my consideration to weave into the uh, Q&A portion of our discussion. Um, finally, please note that uh, we will conclude sharply at 11.45. Uh, and so I will appreciate all of yours uh, giving some attention to the pace of your questions and the queue of questions that I'm going to try to work through um, as we near uh, that edge of the hour, 11.45. I would appreciate your help in that regard. So Ms. Shu's address today will be the eighth event in this series, the, uh, as we call it, the Defense Industrial Policy Series. Uh, this series is an initiative uh, that makes a preeminent platform available to public officials who can address the government's stewardship of industrial, defense industrial resources. Uh, the series is an initiative of the Council's Scowcroft Center on International Security, and it is, I think, also a further expression of what its namesake, General Brent Scowcroft, had in mind for this center, uh, which is to be a place that creatively cultivates a transatlantic constituency for strategic thinking about and uh, practical solutions for the problems of international security throughout the globe. 
the series is the public sector complement, uh, if, if you will, to another series that I produce, the Captains of Indi Industry series. Uh, I happen to see one uh, of the uh, Ellen Lord from Textron Systems, uh, who made such a Captains of Industry address uh, last year, as a for example. Um, and, and in that series, uh, the complement to this one, uh, we hear business executives, such as Ellen, uh, their perspectives on the public interests their companies serve and the public policies that shape their markets. Um, that series, I, I, I want to make note, uh, it resumes in two weeks, exactly in two weeks on the 24th of June, uh, right here. Uh, we will have a panel discussion with four chief executives of U.S. Subsidiary, sub, subsidiaries of foreign companies, uh, Michael Anderson of Saab, Peter Lengiel of Safran, uh, Judy Marks of Siemens and Alan Pellegrini of Talas. So I hope all of you who would find that interesting will come back on the 24th of June at 4.30 in the afternoon for that discussion in our Captains of Industry series. All right, enough with the plugging of other events. On, on to the matter at hand. Um, I want uh, simply to welcome General Pinaro, uh, who is a director at the Atlantic Council. He's also the chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association, uh, one who, as it said, requires no introduction, nor does he permit one. Uh, to the stage to introduce our featured speaker, General Pinaro. Well, thank you very much. We, of course, are privileged to partner with Atlantic Council in these series. and. Joined today by Ellen Lord, one of our executive committee members, uh, John Atherton, a senior fellow that does all our acquisition reform with Will Goodman, our policy director. And I would say this year is shaping up, this is a very timely address, to be one of the most important years for acquisition reform since 1986 when the Packard Commission provisions were enacted. The two defense authorization this bills this year, in my judgment, are the most consequential in decades due to these proposed changes, the retirement modernization, the overhead reductions, and other reform proposals. If you go back and look at the 1994 Federal Acquisition Reform Act or Streamlining Act, the 96 Klinger-Cohen, we did not see changes as fundamental to acquisition as we've seen put on the table this year. And the two bills is over 120 provisions. Um, and a little under 40 may have some in common, so there's a lot to do. They, some of them get right to the heart of the Packard Commission enacted hierarchy for acquisition and devolve many acquisition decisions to our service acquisition executives. Ms. Hsu probably put it as well as anyone when earlier this year she told the Senate Armed Services Committee, and this is her quote, I'm going to give you an analogy that's simple to understand. Over here I have the acquisition bus. The PM, as you know, is in the front. That's the bus driver. All the stakeholders within the Army, as well as OSD, the Comptroller, and the Congress are on this bus. Everyone on the bus has a separate steering wheel and a brake, but no accelerator, end quote. What a terrific description of the challenges and why the two bills have all these reform proposals. And unlike some in government, Heidi Hsu does not duck the Army's own responsibility for the challenges. She and her staff conducted a review this past year to get rid of what she called, quote, the dumb things we do to ourselves, end quote. We know that uh, Heidi and General Odierno and all the defense leaders have warned about the dangers of sequestration. Um, I won't list those, but we know they are profound and we can't wave them away or dismiss them, uh, these concerns by our senior defense leaders. And I know you read a lot in the paper about tactics and strategy for dealing with it, but I would say one thing that we need to underscore, Secretary Carter, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter and all his senior leadership, military and civilian, 
and the defense leaders on the Hill, they're united. They're together in their continuing opposition to sequester. So stories that somehow the Defense Department and the Congress are on a different wavelength is just not accurate. At NDIA, we continue to make the case for a budget deal that would offset sequester's worst impact, move our readiness levels back up to minimally acceptable, and protect the required modernization investments. We'll be glad we made five and ten years down the road. In my personal view, I've been dealing with this for over 40 years. The only viable option for that is a Ryan Murray II, which means you'd have defense increases, domestic increases, required offsets, and nothing else realistically could get signed into law, and the sooner we get on that path, the better. Now, we'll watch these bills go through the process, but whatever comes out the other end, we'll need SAEs like Heidi Hsu to provide, continue to provide the strong leadership, effective management, and perceptive oversight to deliver solid program outcomes. Uh, she brings a degree of experience and practical hands-on uh, that few have had in those jobs from her unbelievable private sector experience. She was the Vice President for Technology Strategy for Raytheon Space and Airborne Systems, many other positions in Raytheon dealing with cutting-edge research. She's worked at Lytton, she's been an engineer at Grumman, started in a huge aircraft company, advanced degrees from multiple universities, um, we're lucky to have her not only in the building, but here to talk to us today. Please welcome me in, address, in welcoming Assistant Secretary of the Army, the Honorable Heidi Shu. Thank you. Good morning. Great to see you guys, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk to you. Uh, so I think I want to step back and give you the big picture. When I walked into the Pentagon about four and a half years ago, Who's counting? Okay. Um, some of the things I looked at are um, how we do planning. And the planning that we end up doing is I consider very palm focused. And every single year is one palm at a time, right? And we were breaking a lot of programs one palm at a time. Because I happened to be walking in when the roller coasters already peaked in terms of budget. It was starting to write down. Just, my timing's always bad. You know. <laughs> Why couldn't I be on the upside? Okay. So one of the things I looked at and I uh, really initiated within the Pentagon is a 30-year strategic plan. Well, why 30 years? Because if you look at our large platforms, it's around for that long. You know, we don't change our large platforms that quickly. Okay. So we ought to have a plan and a strategy to figure out how we're going to incrementally modernize. What are the technologies we need to modernize our systems? But that needs to be informed by the national priorities and the threats. Where are the threats evolving to? Not just what's the threats we're facing today. So one of the things I really push for our folks to start looking at is Get, bring the intel community to come in. Talk to us. Where are the threats today? Where do we anticipate the threats to be in five years? Where do we anticipate them to be in 10 years, right? What are the research that's being conducted worldwide that ought to be informing us to the threat evolution? Because that's the capability gap we have relative to our current programs of record. Right? From the capability gaps that we know that we have, this is where we need to plan 
our insertion opportunities. And our spiral insertion opportunities, either technologies that mature can insert in, or new programs we need to initiate. Right? So I challenge our PEOs to define where we are today, work with the S&T community and the intelligence community to understand the capability gaps. Okay? Map our, our S&T tasks, map into our programs are records and new programs that we need to start once the technology is mature. So we went through a lot of effort to map that out, every single portfolio. At the same time, I said we ought to look at our sustainment strategy, right? Our sustainment strategy needs to tie into our modernization plan. It should not be stovepipe, all these islands of excellence, I call them, right, with no bridge in between. So positive aspect, I can tell you, when I first started pushing this, there was a lot of hand-wringing in the building. Just like, you want what? <laughs> Beyond the palm, right? But the reality is we need to think longer term, right? So this got to, I say, okay, crawl, walk, run, right? You have to crawl first. Let's get this going. Looking at the equipping peg, how do we tie the pieces together? get the S&T communities, requirements community, the budgeting community, intel community on the same room, same time. I can tell you this uh, long-range investment requirements analysis, which is called LIRA, has taken root. So initially, you can't get people into the building to discuss it, but now you, you don't have enough seats in the room. That's actually great. Everybody now realizes you have to be part of strategy, part of the plan, to, to, uh, to be part of the budgeting process. Okay, so that's been great. I can tell you I've done S&T deep dives. Uh, it's very important for us to understand where the S&T is evolving to. That shapes our programs of the future. Um, so I've taken, you know how busy it is within the Pentagon. You never have a mo free moment. But what was very important to me is carve time out. I spent two hours to do S&T deep dives, like once a month. I said, get on my calendar, but don't give me the generic 100,000 foot view in which I get no content, right? I want true technical content. Bring your smartest technical guys and come in and brief me. But paint a picture so I understand where the threats are evolving to. Then why are you doing the S&T, right? That drives the linkages. So I've done that. I've done S&T divide. They were going to the armor technology, the explosive technology, cyber defense technology. One of the eaches I will spend time d diving into the details. Very, very useful, okay? Um, and in return, I've been a huge supporter of our S&T because that is our future enabler. That's gonna bring the capability in the future that we need. It takes time to mature the technology. So we protected the S&T investment. The Army spends $2.4 billion a year okay, in S&T. It's a sequel of our future. Okay. Um, the other thing that was very important when walking into the building, I saw PEOs, program executive offices, stovepiped. There's some capability that has to cut across all the PEOs, right? 
So we stood up a system-system engineering integration organization within the ASALT front office. Because now, this, program's, uh, this person's responsibility is cut across my 12 PEOs, threads a needle, on common things that impacts all the programs, all the PEOs. Well, what are the things that impact all the PEOs? Cyber cuts across every single one of my programs. It's not a stovepipe. You don't want a cyber command to talk to every single PEO individually. That's just stupid, right? So we create a system-system organization with a single lead that can touch across all the PEOs. We do things like network integration exercises at Fort Bliss. You guys are well aware of that. And we conduct that twice a year. And those planning activity is done within that organization. We're looking at common operating environment. How can we standardize our architecture? We're working closely with industry. There's about 72 different industry folks that's working with us to establish common architecture, common framework, common standards. This way we can do the plug and play, okay? Uh, assured PNT, right? Uh, position, navigation, timing. It's critical to our future. We have a common focal point. I, I pulled uh, a uh, PM that's resident within a PO up to the headquarters. Again, his responsibilities cut across all the PEOs. Okay, so those are the activities that we've done. And it was very important for me also to attack our own system, to understand our own vulnerability. So we have red teams that's at the network integration exercises to attack our own systems, to understand our vulnerabilities so we can improve upon it. Those are all the good things. The other thing it became very obvious to me is we need to refine some of the requirements. We need to push back on some of the requirements that's gold-plated. How a program fails from the beginning is if you gold-plate a requirement, you can't attain the requirement. We'll spend endless amount of money chasing after this gold-plated requirement. And I call it a death spiral. What happens is contractors can't meet the performance. We spent enormous amount of money continuously refining, improve the design to get incremental little bit of performance better. You can't get there. And is the cost worth it? Okay. So that's the piece we, uh, I tried to dig into the programs now in the last several years to say, are the requirements gold-plated? Is that something you truly need? or just somebody threw this on the table because this is what they would like to have, but they really didn't think about the implication of whether the requirements is realizable or not. So those are things we're challenging in the, in the uh, acquisition programs because acquisition strategy has to match your requirements, right? If you desire to have the requirement and the capability quickly and you're gonna buy stuff that's off the shelf, then there has to be something that's off the shelf that meets your requirement, right? I can tell you, I have seen programs coming to me asking for approval to move forward in which requirements didn't match the strategy. And I say, you do not, do not have approval to move ahead. Because if I give you the approval to move ahead, I know it's a failed program on day one, right? Why should I do that? So go back, 
reassess your re requirements. Okay, so that's the pushback. That's very, very important. Okay. We have annual configuration steering boards in which you review all the major programs to take a look at are we on track? All this community within the, all the G staff is represented across the board. And we all look at this program collectively because I can tell you acquisition it's not a uh, single player. It's a team sport. Okay? It requires everybody to come together, roll together in the same direction. That's the only way you're going to achieve. Fighting each other makes no sense because you can't get there. Okay? And ultimately, it's the soldier who loses. Right? Uh, the other thing that to me was very, very important is to communicate across the board, communicating across all my PO and deputy assistant secretary. So, so uh, very early on, I decided it was important for me to have a quarterly meeting with my leadership, my 12 PEOs, all my deputy assistant secretaries to improve communication. But the things that I did differently is first hour of our meeting on a quarterly basis is at the TSSCI level. We have a threat briefing. Okay, so we always know, and we go by different topics of different threats. So this way, all my leadership is on the same page. You can't say I didn't know about this. You were there, right? You're informed. Then we can develop a collective plan on how to counter some of the issues that we see that's going to that's going to impact our systems in the future. And then the leadership form really is for a dialogue. What are the impediments that are seeing? Are they seeing things that's driving them nuts in terms of executing their, their, their PEO, their programs? Are the things that we can collectively help to shape, to change policy, change processes, change procedures? That's the most fruitful thing. I can tell you my PEOs all tell me it's the dialogue that's the most valuable, right? Uh, also, I was a little shocked to find out uh, when I first came on board, there's no review of the programs. There's one program at a time that pops up on calendar for review, but there isn't a PEO review of the portfolio, right? And it ought to be, because in your industry, you review all the time. You have monthly ops reviews, right? Each, each vice president has to stand up and justify your portfolio and talk about how well you're doing. So I was kind of shocked when I didn't see that. So I can took, took a year to get that going because there was a lot of pushback which is, oh no, everything's going well, don't worry. Have you heard that before? I have, <laughs> okay. So we started the, doing these uh, program status review, came out with common templates, and so each of, the, each of the PEOs had two hours to go through the portfolio. But once I give you a standardized template, it's a lot of pain to go through it the first time, after that it becomes easy to update, right? It's a, it's a simple quad chart, a lot of information to talk about what is the program about, who's the contractor, right? Talk, tell me what the schedule is, how well are you executing to cost schedule and performance, not just currently, but the trend. A three months outlook, give me red, yellow, green arrow in terms of trend. Then tell me what are the current milestones that they have to meet, right? Current milestone you met and upcoming milestones, events. The bottom quad chart, what are the issues that you're facing as a PM, as a PEO, right? So I have situation awareness of the problem, the issues you're facing, so I can try to help you. 
My job as a leader is not to execute and do your job, but to remove roadblocks for you, to make you succeed. So that's the way I looked at all of our uh, program status reviews. Okay. The other thing that was amazing when I came into the building was there's no global visibility across all the contracts. You know, we at that time we executed over 400,000 contracting actions in the Army per year. I didn't have visibility. So how could I not have visibility? How can you manage anything if you don't have visibility? So we got this going to do the contracting enterprise reviews. So I now establish metrics. Now we can measure how each of the contracting command is doing across the board. Now I have information to see how they're doing. Right? Uh, we look at not just the contracting actions that we have, we look at the type of contracts we are awarding. Okay? Well, we look at, are there GAO protests that's sustained? Because that means we did something wrong on our side. Right? So, and we need to take the lessons learned from that. We look at the small business. How well are we doing? I can, I can tell you, it's over 26% that we achieve in terms of small business. We do a great job. So a lot of metrics that we look at so I can dig into, understand the health of the contracting that, uh, that's across the board. Okay. Reducing bureaucracy, I can tell you, coming from industry for 33 years uh, and coming into the government, it, it was, I can tell you, it was shell shock. <laughs> it was utter shell shock. I said, you got to be kidding me. You can't make this stuff up, right? The stuff that you have to go through in the government. You have so much more bureaucracy that's within the building, right? So what we're doing is we're looking at what are our, all the Army regulations that we impose on ourselves. That's just, we need to clean that up and streamline it. A lot of time you get regulation on top of regulation on top of regulation. It's this band-aid approach, right? That's probably, you know, way too many band-aids. So, so we need, it's time to relook really holistically and figure out what are the things we really need, what are the stuff we just got to streamline and get rid of. Because it just doesn't make any sense anymore. Some policy and regulation being there more than a decade, right? It's time to streamline. So we're doing that. It's going to be a lot skinnier document, okay? Uh, obviously, we've collaborated with OSD to identify non-value-added processes and documents that uh, uh, our PMs have to fill out. Uh, it's, it's onerous, right? We have gotten to the point, it's very, uh, I, I'll call checklist-driven. Right? Our PMs have to say, well, I have you fill out all the documents before this milestone. If you haven't filled out all the documents, you don't get a go. Well, that's a checklist mentality. Right? You're not really thinking through your program. You're not thinking through the risks of your program. Right? Trying to change from, from a checklist mentality to so truly, what are the things we need to do? Are the things we need to tailor? That's the desired end state. In industry, you have the flexibility to tailor. right? Not every rule makes sense to your program, okay? We've been collaborating with Congress to change some of the statutes, some of the stuff that's onerous, um, and uh, we really don't need to fill out 79 documents before you get through a milestone. I mean, that just doesn't make sense to me, okay? We've got to streamline some of these bureaucracy, right? And then I think ultimately it's very, very important to train your acquisition workforce. Um, 
we've uh, done that for the uh, uh, last year to ro start rotating. I mean, last two years, we've rotated our GS-15, our high potential GS-15s. Ultimately, they have the ability to become deputy PEOs and PEOs. So how do we rotate the civilians, giving them the breadth and, and, uh, of experience that our military typically have? Military acquisition has a much better, more rigorous process of gaining diversity of experience than our civilians. So we've done that. We've, we've created rotational assignments for high potential GS-15 to go down to be acting PEOs for six months. Broadens their perspectives greatly. Uh, for GOs, what I have observed, general officers who become PEO, if they've been a deputy PEO first, they're much better PEO. They're stronger PEO rather than dropped in as a PEO without experience as a deputy PEO. Because there's a huge step from managing a program to a large organization with many programs. Okay, uh, So we've done that Was it with... Uh, uh, establishing a process, working with General Williamson to say, let's take our brand new GOs, make sure they have a rotational assignment as a deputy PEO before they step into a PEO role. Okay. The other thing that when I go around to different organizations, what made me realize a lot of folks have no idea what the headquarters is and why they're asking all these questions. I said, okay, let us enlighten you. <laughs> okay. Let's open up the opportunity for folks from the different PEOs who come in for six months of rotational assignment. So you go from seeing one program, which of course this means the world to you within your one program, into you're dealing with 900 programs. It's a far different perspective. I can tell you we've been doing this for several years now. From multiple PEOs coming in for six months rotational assignment, you know, by the time they leave, I always ask you, what did you learn? They say, oh, my God, is there so much bigger world out there <laughs> than what they're used to, right? They're going to take all their lessons learned and go back. It's great. It's nurturing your workforce so they get a bigger picture, okay? And the other thing is military uh, officer. It's very important for them to also get training with industry so they gain a different perspective of how to manage things. So we encourage that. We have about a dozen Army officers that train with industry on an annual basis. Uh, so it's a one-year uh, rotational assignment. And uh, I can tell you uh, it's been very fruitful. Okay. So this is just a quick snapshot I want to share with you all the, the last four and a half years, all the things that we've done differently uh, since uh, I've been in this uh, five-sided building. <laughs> okay. So I'll be more than happy to take some questions. Okay. Uh, if you take that chair there, I'll sit here. Thank you very much, Heidi. Uh, that was uh, terrific. Another, uh, what I didn't uh, mention in my introductory remarks is uh, you're, you're the third of the service acquisition executives uh, who, who have now uh, been here to make an address like this. Uh, Bill LaPlante was here almost exactly this time last year. Um, Mid-range from there in uh, early January, Sean, Sean Stackley was here. So okay. you're rounding out the, the trio. Uh, I'm not sure what we'll do to, uh, to uh, 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 move from there to someone, someone else in the fall, but I guess we all can imagine who that might be. Um, 
I, uh, so I want to start by asking a, a, a few questions, and then indeed we will have um, plenty of time, I think, to turn to questions from the audience. Um, and, and I'm going to work off of news flow uh, for the heck of it. Uh, uh, last week or the week before, the Army awarded contracts for the future fighting vehicle. Um, and I would ask you, um, in part, because I think it resonates with uh, the, uh, the several comments you made about not mm -hmm. you know, matching costs and perform, but the future and technology trends and things like that, to just, um, for, for those who were maybe not paying, you know, reading the fourth paragraph of those stories, what is FFV? How does it or doesn't it relate to FCS, GCV? Sure. Um, what, what are you doing there, and, and how does it reflect the sort of long-term view that, that I, I heard you say, particularly at the beginning of remarks, is an important part of your job and what you want your PEOs to be paying attention to? That's a great question. Um, so one of the things that I've asked our team to think about is there's technology that's being developed <clears throat> that could greatly enhance the capability of our combat vehicles. So what are those critical technologies that we ought to be investing in that could make our combat vehicle a lot more capable? You know, so, and at the same time, save size, weight, and power. Mm -hmm. So what's important to me is do the trade space to understand if I had technology A, it may be technology readiness level or three or four today, and it may take you five, years to mature to technology level six. Whatever the technology, what are the critical enabling technologies that can literally change your design trade space? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm asking them to do that uh, in the area of lethality, in the area of survivability, right, in the area of mobility. Are there technologies that's out there we're developing as a country that can ultimately change the <clears throat> equation. And the trace space ought to be, do we have to have a whole squad in the same platform? Or is it okay to split the squad, right? Because that gives you yet another trace space in the size, weight, and volume of the platform. Mm -hmm. Let's fully understand the trace space of what we have, okay, before we rush off and design another vehicle. Is, is it customary, either in your service or in your experience, to involve industry in this way upstream trade space conversation? Or is this something uh, that you've chosen to do with respect to these technologies and, and, and these companies? So in my mind, um, once upon a time being an engineer, mm -hmm. okay, I can tell you involving the engineer to understand the limits of the trade space is incredibly important. Because the engineer will be able to tell you if you have a current requirement, this is what you can design too. If you want to add a delta requirement of this much more, your cost could go exponential, mm -hmm. okay? Because now it's not a mature technology. I'm gonna to have to invent something else to give you that capability, okay? So understand the trade space with respect to current state of technology versus the art of possible is very, very important. So we don't construct a requirement that's unachievable, and we'll be chasing our tails for perpetuity until the program's canceled, right? That's where I see the death spiral. So it's very, very important to understand the trade space, understand the maturity of the technology we're after, and what can this technology bring you in terms of capabilities? 
And these and these two companies to which you've awarded awarded mm -hmm. contracts, mm -hmm. they they know they they have that expertise is what I'm I'm yes. essentially hearing you say. Yes. And so uh, why not why not reach out to them and access it? Absolutely, because they understand the trace space of the design because they have the experience in designing combat vehicles. Mm -hmm. At the same time, what we're doing is we actually set aside $720 million in S&T in the FIDEP, mm -hmm. okay, to mature a whole series of different technologies, to push the envelope of the technology. So the question I ask the primes, the exact same thing I ask the S&T community, what are the things that you didn't include in your design because the technology wasn't mature yet? If it was mature, would you have included it? Do you have any sense for, um, so this is, this is not the start of a new program. No. Um, do you have any sense for, for when um, uh, the Army's thinking about the renovation or simple future of its, of its combat vehicles, of the heavy elements of its combat vehicles, will we'll, we'll reach the stage of, of, of becoming a program of record? So I think it's very, very important, especially in the current budget environment we're li living with, namely the uncertainty that we have. We have to judiciously take a look at what are the critical gaps that we have today that needs to be filled, right? Is it a light, is it a medium, or is it a heavy? Or can we incrementally upgrade our systems versus a brand new design because we can't get there with current systems? Right. So those are the trace spaces. Very, very important for us to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves to have this discussion. So I think take a pulse and step back for a second to understand the trace spaces we have before we leap into a new program. It's a smart thing to do because mm -hmm. otherwise we're going to rush into something once again. Right. Uh, so the army is doing that. The army is literally looking across the formations to figure out across the formation. Where's the critical gaps we have? And, and how do we fulfill that? Okay, mm -hmm. so uh, we will have uh, what I consider near-term gaps that perhaps can be fulfilled by, uh, um, by you know, it's a light force. Uh, probably doesn't, design, uh, doesn't require in, uh, extensive design, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, we're looking at the trace space versus the need or having uh, something quicker versus going to a brand new design. On the lighter vehicle, sometimes you could buy it off the shelf, which would be ideal. It would be a lot quicker getting there, yeah. right? Or slight modifications, okay? So we're looking through the trace space in terms of capability and needs in a part of our strategic reviews. Okay. okay? Um, I, uh, simply for the purpose of, of creating an object, um, about which to think about the uh, reform provisions that are in, uh, let's start with the, uh, the, the authorization bill from the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you could, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna ask you squarely uh, you know, how you think about it um, per se, but I wonder if you could talk about, because we've talked about it before, using FFV um, as, as, or, or the, the, you know, the need uh, ultimately to renovate and, and have a future for, for combat vehicles, what, what role in acquisition could or should a chief of staff, a chief of service play? Oh, I think the chief of staff have enormous experience, right, in terms of the needs of the <clears throat> Army. So he needs to kind of drive what are the critical things we need and to prioritize it, right? 
his involvement is critical before we launch off our brand new program. He needs to say, within our current budget environment, which, by the way, because we're preserving manpower and focusing on readiness, the modernization budget has taken a huge cut, right? We've lost $7 billion in the last four years, yeah. okay, in the RDA account. We've gone from 23% down to 18%. So we're the bill pair. So before we start any new program, we need to step back and think about what's our priority, right? What's the shortfall? And that should be driven by the chief, right? The guy with the most experience in the operational side. Do, do you, uh, is it your opinion or observation that um, you need different or new authorities in law for him to be a part of that uh, conversation in the way you're describing it? Actually, he can be involved today. There's, mm -hmm. there's no rules barring him from, from not having that dialogue. Uh, I think it's important for us to think about having strategic, not just a portfolio review. A lot of times what happens within a portfolio review, we're reviewing all the aviation, <coughs> we're reviewing all the combat systems, right? You, you get narrowed down and, and look within one portfolio at a time. It's, so, so to me, the way I look at the problem is there are things that's going to challenge us across the portfolios that we have. We fund by portfolio, mm -hmm. right? Each portfolio have to fight among the programs inside a portfolio, right? We ought to step away from that construct. That's not useful because the threats we're facing doesn't stay within a portfolio. <laughs> the threats cuts across. It's like the cyber threat, for example, right? Assure PNT, <clears throat> right? That cuts across a portfolio. So we ought to just step back and take a look at perhaps it's more important to fund in this portfolio than the other portfolio because the threats and the environment we're going to fight it in the future is going to drive us that way. So, you know, Army has done an enormous, uh, enormous job the last 14 years fighting two different conflicts, right? We need to kind of step back, take a look at the type of the fight that we've had to fight. What are the future fights that we're seeing that's happening, right? We are responsible for a wide variety of threats that and wide variety of environments we have to fight in, from the terrorism threat to the nation state threat. Wide, wide gamut of capability that we need. So how are we going to prioritize? There are things we can buy off the shelf to give us capability quickly, like the QRCs, right? Quick reaction capability. There are things we can't buy off the shelf that we've got to invest in. And to me, that's the most important thing for us to prioritize, the things we can't buy off the shelf. Mm -hmm. And the things that you're not going to want to buy off the shelf, you Which need. Won't be there otherwise. Won't be there. Right. That's what I'm focusing on. Okay. Does that make sense? Um, while while uh, we're on the topic of the authorization bills, um, I, I assume I'll, I'll give you whatever opportunity you, you feel like you need to talk about the, uh, the streamlining initiatives, particularly in the, uh, the House authorization bill. My read of them is that they are highly consonant with at least the spirit and a lot of the letter of what uh, you and Frank Kendall have been calling for. Would I be correct? Absolutely. A uh, matter of fact that our office has been working very closely with OSD in identifying here's the things let's streamline. So what we've done, we've actually talked to our colonels who manage these ACAT1D programs. Mm -hmm. Brought our colonels in to say, okay, tell me all the stuff that's really non-value added that you had to go through 
to deliver your program on time. So out of the three-hour meetings, there's a litany of stuff that came out. So we say, okay, what are some of the low-hanging fruit we can tackle first? Because, you, you know, you, it's impossible to change the entire acquisition process in one chunk. <laughs> right? You're going to have to do this in multiple bites. You can't eat an elephant in one bite, mm -hmm. okay? Maybe you're a whale. <laughs> okay, so, so that's what we've done. We, we've identified low-hanging fruit stuff. Help us change the statue so we can streamline our documentation processes, right? And this is something I think we have to do every single year, just nip away at it to streamline it, mm -hmm. okay? okay? And so uh, Representative Thornberry's, a lot of uh, uh, the recommendation he's come up with is very consistent with what we've recommended. So the, the last feature of these authorization bills, again, that were previewed or introduced to us mm -hmm. by uh, <clears throat> uh, Arnold's uh, in, uh, introduction, uh, in, in my view, concern uh, mm -hmm. as, uh, as I think in the, Sa in the SAS bill, they call it creating pathways for both commercial technologies and companies that are more primarily addressing commercial rather than defense markets. Um, you've alluded already to, to uh, how the sussing out of, of capabilities and requirements may create opportunities to buy things off the shelves and other <laughs> things where you need to have mm -hmm. prioritized investments. Um, is uh, in, in the range of, of things that you think got to get done to improve Army acquisition, mm -hmm. is this creation of pathways for entrants, be they, mm -hmm. again, either technologies or, or companies, is that important, nice to have? Um, how would you characterize the significance of these, this creating pathways initiative that's in the, particularly the SAS bill? So uh, I would say, you know, cuts, the commercial world can move so much faster, right? <clears throat> So we ought to take up what's a, what the commercial world is good at doing, right? And leverage what they're good at doing and figuring out for us not to basically replicate, right? But to leverage, okay? But I would say one other thing. This is where the acquisition, uh, I think, rules and regulation has to change. Even today, even if we buy something commercial off the shelf, non-developmental item, well, by rules and regulation, we're going to test this thing to death before we give it to the hand of the warfighter. Mm. Okay. And, and what happens, even on, on non-developmental item, we'll spend $17 million to go to an NIE event to test it. Right? And if it doesn't pass all the wicked, guess what? You've got to go through yet another test. So, Somewhere, this, it defies logic, right? I mean, from a common sense perspective, one would think if it's a non-developmental item, you test it out, you do a limited amount of tests, <clears throat> a limited user test will be good enough. But our rules and regulation doesn't allow us to do that mm -hmm. unless there's an urgent demand, right? So we're stuck in this rules and processes and statute world, in which is very, very onerous and very rigid. It's not flexible to allow us to move fast, yeah. right? So that's, that's a struggle that I see. All these great ideas to buy things and do things quickly, <laughs> we're still sitting within the current construct, right? Right, right, right. Do you, do you think there is a, let me keep pulling on this, uh, this, this commercial technology issue. Do you think there is a lot of, of utility uh, to the department gaining access to more commercial technologies? And permit me to elaborate just this much. Um, it has interested me, uh, particularly in the wake of Secretary Carter's trip out to Silicon Valley uh, uh, maybe a month or, or six weeks ago, 
Um, I certainly have detected both both uh, directly. I, uh, the West Bush made a speech on this topic, uh, and through surrogates, I have detected from our traditional defense industry a little bit of a uh, an attempt to well either a resistance mm -hmm. to the enthusiasm that the department might otherwise show toward commercial technologies, or at least an attempt to recolor the conversation such that. Um, they would acknowledge that there's some utility to commercial technologies, but relative to the really hard problems DOD is working on, they're fairly marginal. And so I'm interested in your view, not least because you are an engineer, and you were in <laughs> an industry. Um, what degree of, of importance and enthusiasm, uh, or actually more practically, what degree of uh, importance to, again, solving your problems as a senior acquisition executive in the Army would uh, having better, easier access to commercial technologies or companies that doesn't, you know, have to walk through all the same wickets that a developmental item would. I mean, how important is that? And 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 how to what degree would you have sympathy with those in industry who I think this is being overplayed a little? The significance of it. Yeah. So so I see it from both lenses. Yeah. Right. I see the IRA. A lot of companies are working on the uh, the traditional defense company. I will say they're developing some critical technology as a nation we need, because mm -hmm. you're not going to bite that off the shelf. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, a lot of stuff are classified, so I can't really allude to it. But on the flip side, there are definite things in the commercial world we ought to leverage. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, commercial world develops apps really quickly and really good, really fast, right? And they're user friendly, because I can tell you. If it's not user-friendly, nobody's going to buy it, right? <laughs> Just, yep. so, so the commercial market is driving these things, whereas the, 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 the defense world is just like, okay, you know, I've got this rigid, clunky user interface, and thou shalt stand. I'm going to stick with it because this is how I train my soldiers, and we don't want to change it because it will change our training. That's just a, that's a weird way of thinking, right? It's, I don't quite understand that piece. Mm -hmm. I said, wouldn't you want an easier to use intuitive design like you would use your phone, <laughs> right? A lot, of, a lot of those apps, look at what we were 20 years ago versus what you can get today. You get a lot of capability within your phone. You simply were stovepipe products before. It's migrated, it's being integrated now, right? So we need to think differently and leverage the world on the outside and where they're really good at. Yeah, right, okay. and allow them to have an avenue to do business uh, with the government. It's not easy for a commercial company that's never mm -hmm. done business with defense before to get into this, go through this work. It's painful, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so I, I think commercial world know that. I, if I, I, I hear you to be saying it's not either or. Yeah. Um, uh, there could be an exquisite developmental technology on the back plane, yeah. but the front piece might be something that a savvy uh, integrator went and got from commercial technology. And Absolutely. that's what the Pentagon, what Ash Carter, not to put words in his mouth, God help me, uh, is looking for, or maybe more importantly that you're looking for. Absolutely. Okay. So there's value absolutely in both. It's not, it's not black and white. Okay. okay. I'm going to ask just one more question, and then I will uh, turn to those of you in the audience who, who may have questions. And it is uh, probably an easy one with a short answer about which you won't have that much to say, but I feel compelled to ask. So the, the not the trailing, but the leading news flow in the Army acquisition over the course of the summer um, is going to be a joint-like tactical vehicle. 
And uh, I'd just like to know, is the program on, I, I'm sure you're not going to tell us the winner, but is the program on track? <laughs> is it uh, uh, still relevant to uh, you know, the most recent threat uh, and, and other uh, forward-looking uh, quarterly meetings that you're having? Uh, JLTV, what, what, if anything, can you tell us uh, ahead of the contract award about how that program's going? Uh, well, it's in source selection, so I really can't I, say much. <laughs> about what's going on, but uh, we're hoping to, uh, to make a war probably late this summer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I deserve that. Um, all right, so I will take questions uh, because I really do appreciate all of you coming in. There are some very savvy uh, minds in the room. We'll start with Sydney uh, right here. Get a microphone, please, and introduce yourself. Hi, Sydney Friedberg, Breaking Defense. Hello, ma'am. Uh, to put several things together, and this is a theme you yourself have raised uh, as a warning sometimes, uh, we have, you know, on the one end, things like ULCV or GMV, whatever you're calling it this week, that are very much near-term technology, stuff that's already present for the light force. Uh, we have basically a modified Bradley for AMPV in the midterm, and JLTV is basically a refinement of, of MRAP technology. And then... I would say that. Well, feel free to correct me, because okay. you are the engineer. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a humanities major, God help me. Uh, and then in the longer term, we have sort of this nebulous FFV R&D that may someday turn into a platform. And you yourself have said you know, that we have a gap in terms of really new platforms uh, coming, at least in the ground vehicle force. So, you know, placing context where on that spectrum from off the shelf to far to R&D these from programs fall, mm -hmm. and, you know, how do we bridge that gap between cool ideas in the lab and things actually happening? Mm -hmm. So, uh, the way I will look at it is the trade space that we're doing today is informing us the art of possible, okay? Informing on the art of possible, why are we doing that? Because you wanna shape the requirements ultimately, right? The requirements has to be written so that you know it's something, when you start a program, it's gonna be the XYZ technologies, and these technologies are gonna be mature at a certain level, right? So. I think it's important to do the trade space. We have uh, FFV, it's really uh, for two years, for 15 and 16, okay? And uh, it's really flesh out the depth of the trade space. In, in parallel, we have S&T activity that's ongoing. A lot of times, if you look at the vehicle, it's not a brand new platform. It's the subsystem that's gonna be the critical enabler of the future, right? So what are the subsystem technologies we need to design and develop that will enable the system, right? So the S&T will help that out. So S&T is ongoing. So there are technologies that's gonna mature sooner, some will take longer. But literally all of this, doing the trace space, understand what technology evolving, ultimately shapes <clears throat> the thinking within the requirement community in terms of art of possible and what they need in the future. And they need to make a decision on the requirement side. Do I have to have an entire squad within one platform or is it okay to split it out, right? 
that drives significantly of what, what the contractor is going to design, right? So, all, so this is leading to a future design, right? I call it the FFV, that's why it's future fighting vehicle. Will be the next generation of infantry fighting vehicle. I'm going to uh, go right to the gentleman next to uh, the last question, please, and then I'll come around here. Um, it's a little bit difficult to actually see all you, believe it or not, so don't be shy with your hands. I'm not going to see you if you go like this. I'm going to have to, you're going to have to ra actually raise your hand. Okay. Hi, Sean Lingus with SCW Federal Computer Week. Um, Secretary, can you explain why it took several hours to get the Army's uh, website back online uh, earlier this week um, after it was hacked? And uh, on a related note, I mean, you talked about the red teams that help um, test for cyber threats. I assume those are for more um, classi for classified systems rather than open-facing websites and social media accounts. But can you talk about your level and concern with the more, um, you know, Army.mil versus the more sensitive systems and how you um, protect both? Yeah. So uh, based upon my uh, understanding, from the email I got uh, yesterday, uh, there was no sensitive information that was uh, released uh, via the attack. Okay, uh, I will say from the red teaming um, aspect of it, we literally are examining our uh, weapon systems, okay, our communication systems, to understand the true vulnerability before you put it out in the field. Right, that's a smart thing to do to attack our own system. You'd rather have a red team attack your own system, understand your own vulnerability. PMs hate it, by the way, because now you're showing, oh my God, you know, here's all the pitfalls of your system. But I like it. I like it because I want to know before I field it, right? Because these are the holes we need to patch up, right? So literally, we do this to ourselves, and we learn from it. And our red teams are really smart guys. They're really good. <laughs> but you want them to be good. Right? All right, there's a question in the second row from the back right over here. Thank you, uh, Sebastian Sprenger with Inside Defense. Uh, a, a quick question on the striker lethality upgrade that's being discussed in Congress. What's the technology and acquisition strategy associated with that, particularly as it pertains to will this be a competitive uh, procurement? Uh, and then maybe to get us to the transatlantic character of this organization, do you have any thoughts on Germany's pick of Meads uh, versus Patriot? That's that two questions, but I'll let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. If, you, if you'll abide. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll answer the first one. Yes, I, I do know about the striker lethality. And that's going to come down to, there's multiple courses of actions we can go down on the striker lethality. Okay. Depends upon the urgency of the need, right? So the theater says, I gotta have this. I gotta get it as quickly as possible. That forces me down a, a, a different acquisition strategy versus, okay, this is a capability we want for the entire quantity of 800 strikers. I am okay with you delivering, uh, taking longer time to deliver the capability. Then, obviously, I do the traditional acquisition process going to go through a source of SOT, right? going to go through a competition and, and get the best value to insert it in. So it's driven by need. Our courses action, we laid out four different courses action. It's going to be driven by who needs it, by when. Does that make sense? 
You want to skip the MEADS question or take it? Well, I think we've, the DOD's pretty much already talked about MEADS, and it's not a, a program of record anymore. We've divested ourselves, so it's, it's QED, right? It's not it's just a mathematical term, so. <laughs> Sorry. Please, there's a question here. One second. Please, one second, please take the microphone. Sorry, Larry Ferguson with CACI. Uh, this goes to your role as the manager of the acquisition process. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that you have um, uh, underway a program um, to replace the systems that you use for managing acquisition and procurement um, in the Army, and so do all the other services. What, have you given that any thought that, that at your level, what you'd like to see out of a future system that can help you better manage the, the acquisition process across the board? Yeah, great. Great question. I can tell you, this is another thing that, that drove me nuts when I walked into the building. There's a lot of things that drove me nuts when I walked into the building. But once, saying, so. <laughs> yeah, this is a wig, right? <laughs> so, so let me tell you, one of the things that I poked at our guys, why is it that via my desktop, I don't have visibility across all of my programs to understand the state of health or how well the program's executing, right? Why do I need each PO to come independently and come up and literally brief me, right? That seems very archaic, right? Not very 20th century, <laughs> right? So I just say, shouldn't I be able to look at a dashboard and be able to click on the dashboard if you're, if you're, you can average across your, your program, I should be able to peel the layer of onion to, to get the visibility, to truly understand What's going on within your program? How well are you doing? If you're having a problem on the program, what is the problem, right? So, so the dashboard is something I've poked at. I can tell you, it's painful. I've been poking at this for years, okay? So the first time I poked at it, I said, guys, this is 1980s, okay? The view that I'm looking at is 1980s. You gotta do a lot better than this. So gotta give them credit, they did come back updated, modernized the look, right? I say, great, you've gotten to 2,000 now, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but still, you need to go better, right? We need to have a better visibility with the dashboard. It's the same thing we do for the health of the program as well as contracting. I should be able to know where we are in the contracting process, right? If a PM sitting there, gosh, I need to make this award, where is my contract? I should be able to, to say, click on this. Where are you in the contracting process, right? What's the average amount of time it takes you to do this? And are we exceeding that? Uh, and then go back to the contracting center, say, what's going on there? Are you short of staff? What's going on, right? So I'm looking for the visibility across the board. I think Army is trying to do that. I can tell the GFIBs, and a lot of these are giving us financial visibility, which is great, right? We're doing this one step at a time to gain more and more visibility into what we have. It's the kind of stuff a commercial company or DOD company will naturally have, right? It's just trying to get the entire Army that way because it's so large right, and has so many legacy systems, to change it in one swell swoop, it's a difficult thing to do. So, so we're doing this one step at a time. <laughs> okay. Um, 
you, I alluded uh, uh, to the fact that you are now the third of the service acquisition executives who has addressed our defense industrial uh, policy series. And I'm reminded in the course of this conversation of what I thought part of the more interesting um, uh, uh, sets of remarks that both Sean and, and Bill LaPlante made. And it had to do with the role and, and responsibility and assertion of, of control over systems integration by the services. Each of them, my words now not theirs, had, to my view, a sort of a back to the future view of the degree to which, in, in Bill's inimitable words, the program manager is going to master the technical baseline. And in Sean Stackley's words, I'm, I'm going to demand open architecture so that I, the system integrator, can trade things off. And you know, as compared to the trend line on the question of who does systems integration that we experienced after the end of the Cold War, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a change. Uh, that is a change of course. Where is army acquisition on the question of who, what is the, where is the, the, the uh, systems integration, uh, both, both in a technical sense but also in an economic sense, where is that function going to reside? So to me, it depends upon the system. Again, it's not one can answer. Okay. There are times in which a prime is better at it in system integration. They know all the guts of their system really well. There's no need for the army to step in. There are other times in which it's a complex system. I'm buying parts from 30 different companies. And Prime, from prior history, has failed to integrate it. And then the government steps in as an integration role. So we have examples on both sides. To me, it's not one solution. It's dependent upon what system do I have and what is the capability I am looking for and who's best at doing it. Okay. And the last question, uh, seeing none, I'm, I'm going to offer up, um, uh, would give you an opportunity to talk about what I think uh, in retrospect after uh, this administration has finished its eight years will turn out to be um, one of the, the permanent marks that it makes on acquisition, and that is the acquisition workforce. That, that from the first days um, has been a, a consistent object of interest and concern and investment of, of time and ideas. And uh, my question to you is, wh where are we in the, um, in the trajectory of, of renovating the Army acquisition workforce for the 21st century? Uh, just leave it at that. Great, great question. So to me, it comes down to how well trained is your workforce. But I can tell you, you can't really read a textbook and become a great acquisition professional, right? There's a lot of on-the-job on the training, I call it. The same with the engineer designing system. You can only get so much by going to graduate school and <laughs> taking classes. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's in, you got to get on the bench and you learn from it, okay? So that's an important piece. Here's what I'm worried about, okay? I'm worried about Army's drawing down in size. So therefore, not only the military's on this glide slope, but the civilian headcounts on this glide slope. Okay? And if the big army forces the civilian headcounts, so thou shall do an X percent headcount reduction, and it's peanut butter across the board, it will impact us significantly. Okay? If you lose, I'm going to hypothetically throw some points out. If you say the contracting workforce has to come down just as fast as, let's say, 20%, well, what will happen is all my program will just stack up. 
I don't have the contracting guys to do the job, right? Everything stacks up. I'm in that situation today. The contracting workforce has come down. So I have pockets uh, right now. My PEO are saying, I need 57 more contracting folks just to do my contracts for my PEO that currently the Army Contracting Command doesn't have. So what happens? Your program stretches out. Do you blame the PM? Whose fault? Right? So those are all the things that we need to think about. One is the skill set, giving them skill set. And it isn't just taking courses. Courses is step one. Second piece is the training, right? So there's courses we need to focus on, additional training we need to focus on, and just the sheer number of people that you need to do the job because it is a complex job. I'm also hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, that the imposition of, of sort of brute headcount reductions it may undermine a lot of the uh, progress that, that, that you all have been trying to make in terms of improving the experience level and therefore competence of your workforce. What's happening now is, uh, uh, as you've seen with the government, there's a bimodal workforce, right? Mm -hmm. The senior folks with most experience are retiring. As a result, you've got more junior folks coming in. It takes them longer to do the contracting because they're less experienced, right? So what's happening, programs are stretching out. It takes longer to do an award. And I can tell you, the other thing that's happening is anything you do wrong, there's an audit. And there isn't just one audit. There's, like, you get attacked from every single angle, right? There's three layers of audit going simultaneous on you. You come to a screeching halt, right? So it's, they're very, very risk averse. The whole organization is so risk averse because you get killed. You get shot and killed. You make one mistake, right? So we're doing this to ourselves, yeah. right? It's painful. All right. Well, on that um, sobering note, uh, I am going to have to draw these, uh, these con this conversation to a close, but not before uh, thanking you very, very much and thanking you all for coming. Thank you. <laughs>